you you have to have faith in what is happening. You've got to connect to God and to your own power and own strength and love to really stand up against people who are not knowing. You're listening to the No Labels, No Limits podcast with best-selling author Sarah Box. We focus on the mantra, no labels, no limits, no excuses. And now without further ado, please welcome your commanding coach with plenty of chutzpah and heart, Sarah Box. Hey there, No Labels, No Limits podcast listeners. Welcome back. I'm Sarah Box, your host of the No Labels, No Limits podcast, where we are on a mission to help individuals, teams, and organizations think outside the box and move beyond limiting beliefs and labels, all so they can have a profound impact in the lives of others and honestly in our own lives. And we do this by sharing amazing and accomplished individuals, speakers, authors, all kinds of people are out in the world. And today I'm excited to introduce to a truly remarkable guest, Michael Rushkin. Um, now, Michael has a long story. He's got a long arc, but we're going to focus in on a slice of it. So I'm going to just give you some background on him. He was born in Brooklyn, New York. He is the son of the late David and Dora Ruskin and brother of late Alan Ruskin. And you will see the importance of that as we go into our conversation. He grew up in central New Jersey. New Jersey. Woo. I put an extra H in there. Um, Now, he attended Kent State University in Ohio and graduated with a BA in psychology and political science. And his career as a human resource consultant had him supporting corporations from around the world. And that has a tie into how he came in to be in different places around our country and have different experiences. He is a frequent guest on many podcasts, both in the U.S. and overseas, and he presents on his parents' story and keeping their legacy alive. And that's going to be the focus of this conversation today, and you'll understand why. He is the last surviving member of his immediate family. He says his book, The Vow, A Love Story, and The Holocaust, is the child he never had. And he's on a mission to carry on his parents' legacy, break intergenerational shackles, and spread the message that God is the prescription for staying alive. He currently resides in Alpharetta, Georgia. So now let me officially welcome Michael Ruskin to the podcast. Hi, Michael. Hi, Sarah. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to meet your audience. I'm glad to share you with our audience. So I want to dive right into legacy and writing. Um, And, you know, you say your book is the child you never had, and it's a part of preserving your parents' legacy. What do you mean by that? It's interesting. I'm glad you brought up as the first topic. There's a tie-in between my legacy and my parents' legacy. Because as you mentioned, I I never had family, and um, my legacy will be this book. Rather than having a child that will grow up and take over the DNA that I gave to them, it's going to be that book. Because to me, um, my parents left us with a very 
special and spiritual message. And I believed it was up to me to fulfill that by writing this book and delivering their story, which they never spoke about. And I believe that basically I'm on a mission to be their voice because, you know, when I was younger, my brother and I tried to get them to go onto a tape recorder and have it recorded. They did not want to do that. In fact, Sarah, there were times when I was very young, six, seven years old, before I went out to play, my mother would say to me, don't tell anyone in the neighborhood that we're refugees. No one needs to know this. And I couldn't understand why, but now as older, you know, there was probably the fact that they didn't want to feel that they weren't assimilating into the community, or they felt guilt that their families on both sides perished, including my sister, and they were guilt because they were still alive. Yeah. But they were very, they were very closed. And a lot of the information I got was from the documents I found, which is a really interesting story. In 1993, when my father passed away, I went down to Miami Beach from New York with my brother. And after, um, before, uh, after the funeral was over, my brother and I decided that we were going to go ahead and sell the condominium in the South Beach. So one night I went over there to start cleaning up the condo, getting ready for the, the uh, real estate people to come in. And as I went to his bedroom and I went to his night table, I found a manila folder and in there were documents that were written by the attorneys and the doctors that were petitioning the German courts in 1964 for reparations for the loss of my sister and my uh, grandparents on both sides of the family and my aunts and uncles because I have no family. And so there it is. So did you know you'd had a sister? Oh, yes. She's, my mother mentioned this once, Sarah, a long time ago. It was around Passover. I remember she said, you know you had a sister, don't you? And I just didn't say anything. And I didn't really press her on this because I was already a, a, an adult and I didn't want to open up the wounds about who she was and what happened. All the, a lot of this information I found out by finding those documents in my father's night table in 93. And so there I am, 11 o'clock at night, reading in German and in English all, all what happened to my parents. They never spoke about it until I found those documents. And I was just blown away. I, my heart went into my feet. It was the, the chilling things that I read about what the Germans did to my family was just unbelievable. So that became the nucleus of the book. So let's go back and introduce us to the persons of David and Dora. Because when I read about them, you bring them alive, like how it was to be them, their, um, their spirits, you know, like their life force spirits. So give us a taste of your parents before they were your parents. Okay, my mother uh, was... They were from the country of Lithuania. Um, my mother was from a country called Majek, and my father was from Kadan. They were about an hour apart. My mother, my grandfather was a very prominent rabbi in the town that my parent, my, my mother and my aunts and uncles came from. My mother was one of nine children. She was the third oldest. And my grandfather was very well known in the Jewish community. It wasn't a large, it was called a shtetl. It was a very small area. And, but he was very well liked by the community. And the children were modeled, my aunts and uncles and my mom were model, model kids. You know, they went to the temple and they Friday night Sabbath and was a very conservative uh, household. 
my mother was a little precocious. I mean, she would get into trouble from what I remember from my, I, I got a lot of this information also from my aunt in, uh, in, in Tel Aviv, but she was a precocious kid. She was very smart. She spoke six languages by the time she got into college, which came, became very handy because we'll I'll go into it a little bit later. But anyway, so she was a smart, she was very smart. She was very well-liked. She hung around with, you know, the kids and she got into trouble like everybody else did. But I come from a line of, of, of rabbis, not only my grandfather, but it goes to a long line of rabbinic scholars that go back to the czars of Russia in the 18, 17, 1800s in, in uh, Russia and Poland. And so I come from that kind of background. Um, my father, and, they, and they, had, they, were, they were very well off. Opposed to my father, who came from a very poor family, my grandfather, and I'm named after my father's father, which, by the way, my real name is Meyer Ruxin. It's not Michael Ruskin. It was changed when I got, it wasn't changed. It was actually, I don't know what happened. My birth certificate had my Hebrew name. But anyway, so my grandfather had a haberdashery. He got involved in making gloves and scarves and hats. And he, they had an apartment on the second floor, and they had a little store on the bottom of the, of the building. And that's how my grandfather made a living. And my, my father ended up helping out in the store uh, with my aunt, her, my father's sister. And then uh, when my, my brother was in his teens, my grandfather passed away. So it was only my grandmother, Minna and Rose, my, my uh, aunt and my brother that ran the store. They were very, very poor people. My father ended up becoming a handyman because he was very good at electricity. So he'd go around the neighborhood fixing electrical equipment in the neighborhood, and he became like a handyman. He was just in high school. Um, all right, so, so you can see the contrast right there between a rich family and a poor family. And the whole book is a book of contrast between the light and the darkness, between the evil and the good, between the enslavement and the freedom and the life and death. This whole book is based on spirituality. And when I tell people in the beginning, I think, oh, it's another book on the Holocaust. Right from the beginning, Sarah, I wanted this book to, un people to understand this is a spiritual book. And I, when I make my presentations to an audience, I say that right out in the front. It's a spiritual book. It's the strength of the human spirit and the power of love, which was what kept them alive. So, so let's talk about the spiritual um, aspect of that a little more deeply, Michael, because I've listened to you on other interviews where you talk about it being spiritual plus a metaphysical experience yes. and having a download when you were writing the book. What was that like and how did that happen for you? Boy, is that open up? That opens up a big topic here. Go right um, down there. Yeah. Um, well, all right. So let me just back up real quick. So when my brother passed away in uh, 2008, he was only 58 years old. Uh, he passed away from hepatitis C, which if he trailed back to, he had an operation in the displacement camp in Munich, Germany in 46, and they used unsterilized instruments and he had tainted blood in his system. So he ended up dying in, in 2008, and I became the last surviving member of my immediate family. And again, I want to remind you, at this point, I already had those documents. Those documents I already had. Um, and so when he passed away and I realized 
that I was the last one to know my, and my brother really didn't go into a real big thing about finding these documents in the night table. He kind of was kind of stoic. He just kind of brushed it off. But I knew that their story was absolutely incredible. So then I began starting to write the book uh, a number of years later, and I can't tell you why. I guess I had moved to another apartment and I found those documents in the uh, in my desk drawer somehow, and I decided I would write the book. And it started off as an ebook, and it was not really well written, and it only stayed online for a couple of months. But interestingly enough, there was a man in South Africa who I found out later was my first cousin. He he was a Lithuanian researcher, and he found this ebook. On a, on a international website that was telling stories about Holocaust survivors. And in there, there was a piece about my father coming from Kadan, Lithuania. And he, he connected the dots. He sends me an email in 2016 saying, my name is Evan Levin, and I noticed that your grandfather is, is or your um, father is from Kadan. And he goes, well, my grandfather, is from Kadan, and I made some research, and I believe that we're related. I didn't know who this person was. I thought he was some kind of nutcase. I just dismissed him. Two days later, he sends me back an email with his aunt's address book, and in that address book was the address, the name, and the phone number of my parents in Florida. So when I found, when he told me about this address book, I was totally blown away. And I knew there was something there between him and I. I found out that his grandfather is my grandmother's brother. So he's really my first cousin. And by the way, I met him three years ago because he has a company here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I met him for dinner. And I, he was my friend. I had no relatives. I didn't even know that he was, you know, until I knew I had a cousin. So we kind of reminisced. And now he lives in London, England. And through his research, I found two other cousins here in the States on my father's side, one in San Diego and one in New Jersey. I never knew I had relatives on my father's side. Wow. So he was instrumental on getting this thing started. So quickly, let me tell you what happened. He has a friend in Los Angeles who works for one of the studios, and he sent the ebook to them. And I was embarrassed because it was so poorly written. The, the, the producer in L.A. read the, the e-book and he said, well, to make a long story short, they thought it was a great book, but they said it would cost so much money to start a film. So we said, well, unless he sells like 100,000 books, the chances of them wanting to invest in a film is not going to happen. But anyway, so I got so we talked for a while and then I started really getting serious about getting involved in writing their story. And that's when. I started pulling together the documents, um, contacting the Holocaust Museum. And by the way, just to let you know, those documents are now at the Holocaust Museum Library in Washington, D.C. I donated those documents to them. And so I, I spoke to my cousin in Jerusalem, in, in Tel Aviv, and I did a lot of research on my own. And then I found the document in 54 that was so. Uh, uh, a reporter where my father worked and my father worked as a laborer in a paint factory. I mean, when my parents came here, my mother worked as a seamstress sewing hems on dresses. My Which father they came here. 
Yeah, when they came here yeah. from Ellis Island in 49, they, they moved, they lived in Brooklyn, they moved to New Jersey. And so, um, so I found this, this, uh, this, uh, this um, interview that was on the company newspaper. And a lot of that was, is in the book, how my father had the mission of going through the countries looking for my mom, through three different countries looking for my mom. All this is in, the, in that interview that my father had. And people say to me, this is incredible. I mean, this can't be, and I'm telling you, it's based on fact. I got the documents and everything I'm telling you is fact. So, so let's, that, his search was based on a promise he made, right? Right. They made so a vow. What was that vow? Yeah, the vow was um, when the when the ghetto where my sister died, um, they were starting to liquidate the ghetto because the Allies were moving in, both from the United States and Russia. They wanted to take the remaining people in the ghetto and move them to the concentration camps further away from where the Allies were invade were were invading. So um, on, I think it was in um, August or early September of 1944, my, my parents were moved from their apartment in the ghetto onto the tra train platform where they were being um, deported to other areas. And they were saying, and the Germans were saying, we're deporting you because we want to make sure you're safe. So they separated the men and the, the men and the boys were going into one train and the girls and the, and the women were going into another train. And so on the train platform, my parents didn't know where they were going. They, they did know they were being separated. And so it was on that platform in 1944 where they made a second vow. And that vow was if either one were to live, they were to go back to Countess Lithuania to see if the other one was still alive. And so, um, and so in the book, I talk about how they hugged and they, you know, they said goodbye. And it was really very emotional. So my father was put on a train going to Munich, Germany, to the Dachau concentration camp. My mother was being put on a train to Stutthof, which is in northern Poland. They were going in opposite directions. No one knew in that, and a lot, a lot died on their way to the concentration camps, like eight to 12 hours. The, the, inside the boxcars, there was, there was absolutely no facilities, no room to breathe. It was all slatted wood. And, um, and they, they just knew they were being separated. And they didn't even know where they were going until they landed in the in the concentration camps. And so they made the vow that night, as I said, that day on the platform, that if they were to live, and then for the next nine months, Sarah, they didn't know if the other was still alive or where they even were. All they knew is here was a man he was she was ma married to already for uh, four years. My sister died only three months before they were shipped off to these concentration camps. When you sit down and you think to yourself, how could anyone, and, and the way my sister was taken literally, literally out of the arms of my mother by an SS officer, because they were killing all the children. So I was, so as I was writing, as I was typing, um, I realized, you know, and this is part of what I said in my book, like I, I would hear 
And I said, this is their book, Sarah. This is their story. I'm only a messenger. I'm, I didn't write this book. They wrote this book. I stand up in front of people and I say, I'm only filling in for my parents. They should be here talking about it. I'm, I'm basically the, I'm the, I'm the messenger in this. So I would be typing away in the middle of the night and I would hear these words coming into my head that I could not, I did not make up these. All I did was my fingers are just going across the keyboard, just letting them go as if they had a mind of their own. And then in the morning I'd wake up, I looked down at the keyboard and I couldn't believe that that was me that just wrote that. It, and so there was so much synchronicity and so much, so much, I could feel them around me all the time. All the time. I mean, no matter where I go, I I, I, could, I see light sometimes in the bedroom at night. I, I could feel flashes of light coming into the bedroom, and so um, so so that's how that that whole spiritual thing started. There was one time I remember, two o'clock in the morning, I was typing. And I heard this crash on my deck in my condo, and the next morning I woke up and a branch from a tree that was like 300 feet in the air, the branch of it went right down into an empty flower pot and it looked like a tree. And it was like the tree of life that they say in the Kabbalah, in, the, in Judaism. And I couldn't even pull it out of the, of the flower pot. It's it was so hard in there. It was just incredible. Hey there, everybody. I want to take just a minute out of this episode of the No Labels, No Limits podcast to tell you that we are officially opening the Sandbox membership in September. So if you're not already on our mailing list, please click the link below to either sign up for the membership or get on the waiting list for the membership. And if you click the link, you'll find more information about what's included, what our plans are, and better yet, you'll be on early enough to help decide what is most important to you to experience in the first three to six months of the membership. So don't wait, click the link below and join us in the sandbox where fun happens. We get to do a little R&R, little learning, support one another and really grow and expand in ourselves, in our lives and impact the world in a profound way. So come on over, join us. So when uh, this is a side question, when you see the light and feel the light in your house and around you and your parents, do you take a moment to talk with them? All the time. All the time. I, you know, I, first of all, I, I think gratitude. I, I, what, really, what really is so disturbing for me is that um, I didn't know who they were. I didn't know them. We would sit in the den watching World at War. It was an old document of, 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 of um, clips of Germans taking the Jews into the concentration camp. It was a weekly, weekly TV show. And here I'm sitting in the den next to these two people. I couldn't connect what I was watching on TV with my parents to these people that were sitting next to me. And to think that if I would have known how special they were, I would have been so I would have been so grateful and so honored to be their son. I never even made them understand. Now that they're gone, I want to know how much I love them, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Your legacy, yeah, and, and and if, if and they they wouldn't and and for me, I'm trying to get their legacy to be really you know I'm going around the world with this book, and it's it was my intention right from the start. It was to get this around the world, and I'm getting there. You know, I just spoke in the Ukraine about two months ago, 
I spoke in, in the Netherlands and Australia, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of podcasts right now. So, How are you being received, Michael, especially since October and all the upheaval? And how are people receiving you? Extremely well. I mean, it's like I, I in one of my, on my Facebook page, I have um, 1933 Berlin, Germany, when the uh, students at the University of Berlin were burning books in a bonfire. And the bonfire is being guarded by the SS in 1933. And it started on the college campuses in Germany. And I see the, the similarities between happened there to what's going on now between what's going on in the Middle East. And, um, and, to one of, and what's also a spinoff is that now I'm here to educate, especially the younger generation. I am telling you, Sarah, I use the word Holocaust. They don't even know what the word is. Right. That's what I was going to say. When you're talking about liquidation, I, it occurred to my head, if you're a certain age, you know what that means. Otherwise, it sounds like a financial term. We're <laughs> liquidating assets. Well, it does. It can yeah. feel very just kind of clinical, right? right? We're not talking about liquidating. We're talking about wiping out people, killing people. It's absolutely yeah. mind boggling. And the fact is, Eric, I'm talking about Jewish students that don't even know that much about their history. And if they would know the similarities, they would be they would be where they we can't just sit there and let this happen. We got to stand up and we got to educate. And so my goal now is to get into the schools, but it can be very controversial because you got the other side, you know, with the Hamas and then the, the Palestinian thing, and it causes a lot of tension between, especially on the college campuses. So it's hard to get into the schools right now, but. You still got the synagogues and you still got the Jewish center. So I think there's also the important thing of hope that you talk about, which is what's unique about your book. It's about the horror of what your parents went through, their survival, but just their steadfast commitment to one another and to love. Right. Right. And to have hope. And to have hope. hope. That they have something to look forward to. But the, the hard part is, here it is in uh, Dachau concentration camp, and my father doesn't know if my mom's still alive, and my mom doesn't know if my dad's still alive, but they still prayed, and they still knew that that vow meant everything to each other. And my father would not give up because, as I said, when he was, he was released after he was liberated, he went through almost two months of being on the road looking for my mom at the displacement camps on his way back to Lithuania. So, and I, I'm thinking about your spiritual connection with your parents now, right? And also there's a sense they may have felt physically the other was still alive, whether they could find him or not. I don't know if that's out too out there for you, but I no, don't believe it's like, yeah. When the connection's yeah. there, the yeah. thread's there. Yeah, there was, there's no doubt about it. Because I, I, I come from like a, the quantum physics world and, you know, and that sort of connection about the energy. And I think they both knew that they were still, I mean, you know, and the way, I'm not going to go into exactly, I don't want to ruin if they buy the people buy the book, but, you know, how they ended up finding each other after the war was just incredible. Yeah. I'm and not going to talk about that either. Yeah, no, but I'll my leave it father, out there. I'm going to tell you, my father was a very quiet man. My mother ran the family. She, my mother was really smart, but how much he loved my mom so much. And, you know, and he, he was an excellent provider, but he, he was very, he didn't speak very much. And my mother was the one who had the voice in the family. So we listened to my mom. So but who do you take a, after? You know, 
I take after, um, I say I'm more like my father in the sense of having a very deep feelings, but I don't, um, but I don't express them as much as I should. I, I am now as I'm getting older, I'm more comfortable now speaking my, my truth. And so it's a lot, it's a lot easier now, but I would say I'm more like my dad in that sense. I'm a very, you know, I, I'm a very giving person. You know, I really care. Right now I'm working with autistic kids and I'm working with uh, people with the elderly. So I'm a caregiver. So in addition to what I'm doing now, I'm also doing caregiving work. So, um, so anyway, yeah, so they're, they're with me all the time, you know, and I know when I go to bed at night that I know my angels and they're there with them. And, you know, I, I know how much, I know now they know how much I love them. You know, I'm, I can't tell you I'm working seven days a week, like 16 hour days just to get this book because I'm self-published. I'm not going through a publisher. So I'm doing this all by myself. So let's talk about your vision for, okay, here's where it is today. Well, you're out there trying to spread the word. You're speaking on stages, podcasts. Um, but let's say it's two years from now, maybe three, two, two, three years. And all of that's behind you. And you have achieved what you want. What does that look like, Michael? Um, I don't know if I'll ever, I, I don't know if I'll ever get to a point of being achieved everything. I, I think I'll be doing this for the remainder of my life. Okay, let's make it simpler. That you've reached a major milestone on where you're headed. I, I would probably always be part of um, educating the people to what, what, what happened then and what's happening now. I think we're in a very, we're in a crossroads. It's a very difficult time. Um, I, obviously, the, 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 to me, getting a film started, having a movie that could be going on for a long time would be my ideal. But the book to me is much more important at this point. But um, I would I'm all I would always be involved in making sure my parents' legacy continues, regardless how many people know. I still want to talk about it, um, and I, I believe honestly I believe pe people would say I started this at a such a you know I'm not exactly a spring chicken anymore, you know. So, um, but I think one of the reasons I'm here was to carry on this legacy at this age. I mean, it's amazing that it's giving me the energy. And the purpose, it gives me a purpose that I'm doing something for my parents. Yeah, I don't, I wouldn't say um, the chronological age is defining you because you're very energetic and focused. Yeah, I am, yeah. I want to ask you a slight shift question. I was struck by the whole concept of the Germans telling your parents that they were sending them away from the ghetto to be safe. And I... I don't know what I was listening to at the same time or in around me, but I thought, you know, that whole concept of people trading safety for freedom, you know, like, okay, we're going to move you away. And they're already, no, they're not in a safe situation. What do you think we give up for that sense of safety, Michael? What's the risk today that you see? Does that question make sense? No, it does, and I think that's not a good that's not a good place to be, um, because you're actually acquiescing to someone else's um, will, and the safety is um, 
is not guaranteed. Um, just to back up one second, and I'll tell you that when my when the Germans invaded Lithuania, um, and and, and Kaunas, the, the the Germans said. Now let me back up and say this: the local Lithuanians were killing the Jews because they blamed the Jews for collaborating with the Russians. And the Russians were very oppressive to the Lithuanian people. So when the Nazis came in and kicked the Germans out, I guess very historic, historical, uh, kicks them back to Russia, the German, the Lithuanians were killing the Jews wholesale. They were, they, my grandparents on both sides were killed by the Lithuanians who were, who were collaborators with the Nazis because they thought if they killed the Jews, they would get their state back, sovereign state of Lithuania. It didn't happen. But the point is that it was the Germans that said, we're going to create a ghetto and we're going to take you, 32,000 Jews in this town. We're going to put you in the ghetto, barbed wire the ghetto, keep you in there to be safe. Now, they were using that as a systematic way of killing the Jews. That's what they were doing. They had raids in the apartment buildings. That's one of the reasons my sister was taken. They would just go into the apartments and take clothes and jewelry and money and just take whatever they wanted and leave. And because they wanted the Jews in one confined area where they could be controlled. And that and, and those the, the Jewish people said, we're going to be safe if we go into the ghetto. That was the furthest thing from safety. It was not safe. There's something so profound about that, Michael, because that sense of someone saying, if you do this, we'll protect you, and you give up your your sovereignty, your own self-agency. Um, and it can feel initially like, oh, what a great idea. We can have a barrier. But you know what? You're on the inside as a prisoner. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But I think, so that, I, I think Jewish people today are a little bit more aware of what's going on. I'm not they talking about them. I'm talking about the rest of us. Yeah, that's true. Think of, I mean, because you've got a history, except for the younger ones who don't know the history, like you're trying to educate. But that goes for anything when someone says, hey, we'll make you a separate group and whatever the group is and protect you. But at some point, you're so carved out of the whole group. How are you? How could you be protective? No, you're not. You're not. You're being singled out. Yeah. And then the Lithuanians, right, to save themselves, killed the Jews. Right. So, yeah, that's the they went, when, they, when the Germans arrived, my mother told me this. She got the, the Germans came in and said, show us the houses that the Jews lived in because they just got into the town. They didn't know. And the Lithuanians appointed the house. And the Germans said, go get your guns, your machetes, your knives, your baseball bats or whatever. And they went in. They just killed them in their homes. As I said, that's how my grandparents on both sides died was because the Lithuanians came in and killed them. And they were so very so I just want to point out to the No Labels, No Limits listeners, mm -hmm. this is not a typical episode, but this really is about not accepting limits or barriers around us. And our heart has to stay open in the midst of all of this. Because yes. it could be easy to make us, to cause us to create hate against one another that only serves somebody else's purpose. Correct. Well said. Well said. Yep. Yeah, I didn't want to overstate on your behalf, but that's some of the stuff that I just took away from what you've been sharing and also the book. I never thought 
that we would see a, a repeat of what happened back then now, like the, what this, the adage is, let us never forget. And now this is going on and I'm telling you, sometimes I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. I just cannot believe this is going on. And yet I do. I mean, what happened in Israel and how they, they kind of just kind of melted into everything else about the Jews and the Zionists and the, it becomes so kind of convoluted. It's confusing for people. Yes. And you're getting very low informed people out there on the street that they just follow that we call I call them sheeple. They're sheeple. They just follow. And they don't know. They say, well, they're protesting, so I want to be part of it. I don't even know what they're protesting about. Well, and when we for, when we don't know history, we just keep doing the loop, right? If you go back hundreds and multiple mm -hmm. hundreds of years, you can see evidence of this type of thing, right? Yeah. Not necessarily identical, but we it, we do owe it to ourselves to know our history. Absolutely. It's critical. And they're not teaching it. The schools just aren't going into the history, especially European history and what happened in World War II. They're really not going into that. So these kids don't know. They just don't know. Why do you suppose that is, Michael? I just, I just don't think the, the, the education is really focused on the past as much as it should be. And if they are, they're focusing more of the, his, the American history they're not really going back into the European here. And, and, you know, we're all ancestors coming from somewhere else. So I think they're making a big mistake by not focusing on what happened to get like the, the uh, immigrants coming over here in the 30s, 40s and 50s. You know, the Statue of Liberty and, you know, give us your poor. I mean, that, that's, that, that's the fabric of the United States. It comes from over there. So... Yeah. So I'm excited to have you on the podcast, and I yeah. hope that as we go forward, um, we can help you in other ways as well. Thank you. Because I know that it's a brave, it's brave to put yourself out there, and I'm so glad that you're being welcomed so openly and that people are wanting to hear more. So say someone wants to have you come and speak to their group or on their podcast, what is the best way to reach out to you, Michael? They can reach me through my website. Uh, the, and, and by the way, my book can only be ordered off my website. I'm not Barnes & Noble or Amazon. I'm doing this all by myself. I go to the post office every day, and I fill the envelopes with books, and I go there every day to send out the books. I mean, it's just unbelievable. But, you know, and I autograph each book. Each book I autograph. And I sell thousands of books. I mean, you know, I'm autographing every book. Uh, so they go to uh, thevowalovestory.com. They could also visit me on Instagram and Facebook. But if they want to, and if they want to set up, I call a, a book talk with Michael Ruskin. Uh, I'd, be, I'd love to, stand, to be in front of an audience and telling them exactly what I'm telling you. And I, sometimes I'm watching these people, you know, I have a PowerPoint presentation and I'm watching the faces out in the audience. And, and when I talk about it, they, their eyes just kind of light up. They just cannot believe what I'm saying. And, you know, I show them all the, some of the things that happened. It was just amazing. But um, I love speaking about it because that's why I'm here. So, yes, if they want to reach me for a um, presentation, a book talk, they can reach me through my website or through uh, Facebook. And I want to point out that even though the Hollywood producer didn't think there was enough money to produce something for you, that's actually not true. You could crowdfund this. And, yeah. Um, yeah. 
we're, we're talking about that right now. Yeah. But um, it's, it's an important topic, Sarah. And um, I, I believe a lot of people would benefit from a film or a documentary or a mini series. I sent a book to Steven Spielberg two days ago. But, you know, there's so many books out there on the Holocaust. Um, I don't know if they'll pick that up or not. But um, listen, you got nothing to lose. But the bottom line is, my bottom line is to try to get this, this book into the hands of as many people as possible so they know my parents, they know what happened, and the spiritual part of the power of love and the strength of the human spirit, because that was the only reason they stayed alive. It was well, that and you're here now as a result of that. Right, exactly, exactly. If, if anything had changed on their journey, I wouldn't be here right now. Everything had to fall into place. I just love how it, this whole process has brought you to um, know your parents better. I think all of us, we don't ever see our parents fully, but I know of that era, people, they didn't talk about what was going on with them. Yeah. No, they didn't. And also, the, the veterans of that time, but I mean, we, they would not, rarely did they ever, well, I'll tell you one thing, though, my mother my mother was very protective, but at the same time, I would rarely bring up anything that uh, happened back then because I didn't want to. I didn't want to open up the wounds, but they were not volunteering information, and I just never knew. I will tell you, ra being raised by Holocaust parents, she was extremely protective. I mean, she would literally walk me to school in the morning when I was very young. And she would wait in the in the uh, schoolyard at three o'clock and get out of work or early to walk me home. And it was embarrassing because my friends were walking with their playmates and I'm being taken home by my mom. Totally understandable, though, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. and also I spoke Yiddish until I was seven years old. I would go into the classroom. They, would, they thought I was from Mars. They didn't know what I was talking about. What's up with this kid? Yeah, I can't even speak English. He's speaking Yiddish. Oh, man. Michael, thank you for spending time with us on the podcast. I'm sure. going to give you the last word. So what word of advice or encouragement would you give young people today who are surrounded by all of this? You, you have to have faith in what is happening. You've got to connect to God and to your own power and own strength and love to really stand up against people who who are not knowing, you know, these are people that don't understand. And I believe that we have to stand together as a people to, um, to actually fight back against those that are not wishing us well. But the bottom line is the strength, as I mentioned before, it is that strength of the human spirit and that love is what can overcome any circumstance or any hardship but you've got to believe. You've got to have faith and you have to have love. Love of yourself, too. So, listeners, as you know, I want you to go to the show notes. You can connect with Michael there. We'll have all of his connections. Check out the book. It's a good read. And share it with your friends. And if you happen to know Steven Spielberg, give him a thumbs up that Michael sent him a letter. Because it... I, it could, it's a story that needs to be told. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the No Labels, No Limits podcast with best-selling author, change agent, and strategic business coach, Sarah Box. 
You can grab the show notes and find out how to work with Sarah at sarahbox.com slash no labels, no limits podcast. We'd love this podcast to reach as many people as possible. Please remember to rate, leave a five-star review, and share the podcast with someone you think would get value from this conversation. Till next time, keep taking those daily action steps to align your purpose to your principles and achieve your goals in business and life.